Hello and welcome back to the Griffin Review. My name is Matt, I'm your geopolitical analyst and co-host, and with me is joined Grant, our technical analyst. Overall, great guy, and he's got a lot of material for us today. So what do you have for us to begin with, Grant? Thanks for the intro, Matt. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's good to be talking today, and you know, the first one we're going to have is a topic which no one wants to talk about, and this is the shrinking military technology gap between China and the U.S., I have heard so many people deny that this gap is shrinking. In fact, I've had some, many people claim that the gap is growing between the U.S. and China. I wish that it was growing, being an American, but the numbers out there state that that may be, in fact, wrong. And this is a fact of momentum. I'm going to start off with a quote that I read in a book the other day. Think about your small $1,000 drone. That's not going to be manufactured in the U.S., This small camera drone has sophisticated flight capabilities, sophisticated sensors and cameras. You weaponize that, and you have next-generation infantry for a few thousand dollars, not to mention precision artillery. Momentum begets momentum. And China is in a period where all of their accumulated advantages over the past two decades are compounding quite nicely. End quote. If you've ever worked with a finance person, or talk to someone about opening a bank account or investments, you are familiar with compound interest. And that's the concept that is being talked about here. Okay. China in the U.S. disrupting the U.S. military. So is it fair to say that these Chinese advancements are continually on this, shall we say, low-end material still producing large benefits? As in, let me rephrase it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. The Chinese have been prioritizing the low end of the food chain so much that they've become experts at it. And that has given them a competitive advantage and momentum accordingly. The, that, that's the going idea behind this, yes. Okay. All this invested research into these units. Because frankly, as a consumer drone pilot myself, I hold an FAA license to do so. The best consumer drones out there, these cheap little ones that in Ukraine they're using to drop mm. grenades onto each other, right. these are not made in America. The good, These good consumer drones with sophisticated sensors, cameras, and mapping technology, America doesn't make them. They're made in China. If they did, I would be buying American. Yeah. My unit here is a DJI Chinese-made unit. Right. And the fact that they can produce this incredible technology, tracking technology, identification technology at a relatively low price point and get it to the market for what they're doing. Um, This is not a civilian effort. No. Not in the least. And to think of it as such would be foolish. Well, I think... Sorry, if I could finish. Going back to who's doing what militarily, Hmm. let's put it in a bit of a comparison. It looks like building... The U.S. builds these sports cars, Ferraris, Ford Hmm. class carriers, and F-35s. Yeah. But it really, you don't need a Ferrari. You need a couple F-150s to do the job. Yeah. You just need what it takes. And frankly, now China has historically just made what it takes. But like I said, the sophistication which is here through building gazillions of Apple iPhones and these DJI drones, this is compounding quickly. And so we need to be keeping our eye on this shrinking technology gap because I know the U.S. has that bloated military budget. And it has had that for many years, but that means that we have accumulated depreciation. We have a lot of equipment out there with depreciation attached to it. Mm-hmm. I know we're still using the B-52s, or what, what's the bomber? The the C-130s or something. 
the stuff we were using in the Vietnam War, which is still effective today. Right, but it's being phased out. It's being phased out. Uh, uh, what's your, have you seen uh, an, an opinion in the news on this technology gap I'm talking about, military technology gap? Well, I have, and usually they're very badly worded, as in the response comes down to one of two things. Yes, people say China number one and will be the greatest power of all time very soon and is just a matter of you know days, weeks, months before it completely dethrones the United States. These are generally arguments made by the illustrious Wu Mao army and have very little actual evidence behind them. It's just pompery, and it's made by the Chinese propaganda system. Hmm. Then on the other end of the spectrum, I see Americans saying, America, number one, and will always be number one, and will never be dethroned. The, and that's also pompery. The second that you start to overlook things because you just say we are number one, that's right. the day you become number two. But when your pride and the ego gets too far ahead of your own development to watch out for the underdog. And I, I think what you've really clarified is that it's this idea that the low end of the value added chain is what China specializes in, and it's simultaneously where they'll outcompete the United States. At the end of the day, though, what we haven't seen in the Russia-Ukraine war is necessarily a very highly sophisticated system of warfare. Mm -mm. Right? So yeah, you have $1,000 drones dropping grenades on people, but that's because neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians have access to anything above a $1,000 drone. Sure. What I would be interested sure. in seeing is what happens when you actually have high value added, a small amount of high value added structures versus a lot of low value added structures. Who wins in that fight? I mean, that's how Germany destroyed the Polish cavalry in the 19, 1939. Right. The Poles tried to fight a modern tank force with horses. They outnumbered them 10 to 1, That's, but that didn't matter. <laughs> now, I true. see the analogy that you're drawing, right. and I get it, that the more lethal technology will defeat the crude but numerous smaller one. But I think that's becoming less of an advantage because China is not that crude, far behind technology. Look at these DJI drones. They can fly in swarms. Right. And, and the swarm technology of the DJI drones and the fact that they've maxed out the low end of technology so much does make me think that that same comparison falls apart a little bit. The only reason I bring it up is that I'm saying we haven't necessarily seen a very clear comparison in the Russia-Ukraine war. So we're okay. yet to see how the actual technological supremacy of the United States would compare against the highly efficient, low-value-added scheme of the Chinese Communist Party. I see. I, I, I totally vibe with that because you're right. We have not seen those in direct combat yet, but, but let, let's look here. I do want to clarify that I think your point is incredibly well taken because we don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about it enough. And the fact that people are comfortable just saying, eh, yeah, we're number one, and not talking about it, that's where the danger lies. Um, a high-cost structure. Labor is more expensive in the U.S., mm. developed country, which means that the U.S. is spending significantly more per bullet fired and per soldier per day than any other country that puts stuff in the field. This is coming on to a wasted resources debate now. Yep, and it's also the entirety of the American economic system is a bloated corpse. And I'm going to throw this out there now in case anybody's listening who has doubts about this. Nowhere else in the world is somebody paid six figures to be an HR professional. That is an American exclusive phenomena. Mm. And the reason that we have such overpaid people in such, shall we say, unimpressive roles is 
because we have that money to throw around and we've thrown away economic efficiency for the sake of of trying to maximize the highest end of our value added scheme so our human rights professionals are some of the best in the world they're overpaid because of it I, I'm, I'm gonna tweet that the <laughs> six-figure salary HR person is an American phenomenon yeah it truly is it's just us Wow we are the only people who pay our HR professionals six figures in Germany they're lucky to get paid 25,000 a year yeah. that is just how much money we have to throw around here which means that China is able to get a lot more value added from the or value a lot more output from the minimal input yeah and you know closing closing point on this is just the mentality with which uh chinese industry approaches mm. that america you are coddled in your workspace i don't think that you like know how easy you fucking have it oh. like uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of this book a little bit ago, but it was describing the differences between Silicon Valley USA and the, what is the equivalent of China's Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you think that those traders and software engineers up in Palo Alto and stuff or Mountain View, that they're, they're working hard. They are working hard, yeah. many of them. But you look at the comparison to how cutthroat it is on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, and the motivation with with which those thought leaders in china will leap up and get into the trenches to solve things yeah. is something which you could not see uh executive in american silicon valley do yeah. that level of devotion dedication and desperation if they don't show up they're gonna lose their job tomorrow Absolutely. there's another entrepreneur who's gonna get it and at the end of the day the amount of protections that we have in the united states has enabled a very lucrative environment for our workforce that everybody's going to be able to make a decent living wage if they succeed at their craft and i'm happy to be in a country where that's possible where mm. we can provide a Absolutely. decent living wage to people to live easily and you know do the eight hour work day etc that's yeah. great for you who like it but i'm just saying there's a war coming and this is what we're up against. Well, hopefully there's not a war coming. Hopefully I'm, there's I'm, not a war I'm, I've coming. I've got my fingers crossed on yes. that. <laughs> um, but, you know, inch by inch, not inch by inch, but inch turns into five, three inches, turns into yeah. eight inches, turns into a foot, and then you have this compounding effect of the technology and their convergences. So I know you want to talk about the evolution of co-working. How does this feed into the idea of co-working space in the United States? Uh it's it's a really different topic on that today. Okay, we'll okay, we'll wrap absolutely. around to it, yeah, but yeah. thank you. But um, yeah, I think we are ready to move to our next topic. Okay. But I just wanted to throw it out there that there is not enough chatter, there's not enough discussion about that shrinking military technology gap between the U.S. Yeah. and China, and it's concerning that there's silence. Well, I appreciate it. Essentially, what you're saying is that we're comparing apples and oranges. At the end of the day, people who are trying to compare the United States and China on the grounds of you know, who has the better planes? Okay, yeah, America wins on that one. Or who has more men that they can throw in the field? Okay, there's China wins on that one. Yeah, there's new capabilities for fighting in the 21st century. And there are reasons to assume that the metrics that we're determining success are inadequate. Inadequate, not big enough of a scope. There's okay. more factors to take into account. There's more new technologies that we have to get on top of. 
They don't encompass the realized risks. And and maybe I'm just like so far down the chain that I don't know that America has these things, but other people are writing about it who do have – who are privy to that information, so I'm just kind of parroting right now. At the end of the day, you and I do not have a super top-secret DOD clearance, so we can't really speak to the American capabilities, nor can we really speak to the Chinese capabilities. So we have to base ourselves off of the technology that we actually can see. Yeah, but we need to have – this conversation needs to be had. It needs to be recognized. But let's move on to another conversation that nobody wants to have. (sighs) You've been to L.A. recently? <laughs> oh, no. Yes, yes, I have, Grant. Tell me about L.A. Has the homeless situation there gotten better or worse? Oh, so much worse. San Francisco? It's, um, it's, it's kind of like when you step into L.A. these days, you, 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 it, the distinction between the DRC is in, it, it's increasingly fading. It, it really does look like kind of a third-world hellscape. I think it's like... 18 and a half billion with a b billion dollars that the state of california has sunk into its homeless problem in the past three years to no effect yeah um and i don't think it's doing anything in fact i think this is a new vietnam war Mm. that the uh sunk cost fallacy is coming into effect we've already put so much money into it we can't admit defeat now we got to keep putting more resources in to turn to turn strategies would be to admit defeat and the people who are in charge in L.A. and Sacramento and San Francisco, to admit defeat would be an end to their career. You can't say I fucked up two years ago. Mm. I'm going to rephrase that. You can. <laughs> and you can look very admirable. He who was able to look back and, and say, that was a mistake. Here's what I believe the right path is forward, but why don't you help me determine the right path forward? That is a powerful man. But that person also has to oh, have yeah. other successes under their belt with which they can refer to. You can't make mistakes throughout your entire career and expect people are still going to give you credit. Sure. So this person who is able to admit their mistakes also has to have a long lineage of successes. Yeah, and, and you know, if you're... Uh, that didn't sound right. I was going to say, if you're involved in, in local government, you've probably had successes, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, the, the quality of our local administrators has been going down steadily. And I yeah. think especially as you're talking about the situation in L.A., as you know, somebody who lives in proximity Locally. to LA, yeah. it's definitely starting to become so horrible. It's spilling over into surrounding counties. And let us not pass. Let us not not recognize. Let us recognize the fact that these are people too. Oh, hundred percent. They have situations which I might not. We don't. We could not fathom. We could not be aware of why they got there, how they got there. You know, for a bunch of them, we could assume crack cocaine or something. But uh, there's situations that are unique to every single person. And I'm not going to go condemning the individuals. I just, again, want to open the conversation and say it's been years, billions of dollars, and it's worse. I think that you could go and ask 10 people on the street, 100 people on the street, and they're going to say is it better or worse. And you'd get 99% saying that a homeless situation is worse. This is taxpayer money. This is our country. This is our state this is where I live, and I'm tired of seeing people out there in distress. And so the solution is not clear. It's so difficult because there is what what is the right way to deal with it, and I couldn't give you a clear answer right now. But the fact is is that this is a analogized Vietnam War. 
Well, I think what you're what you're clarifying is incredibly important, which is finances without corresponding competence and bureaucracy leads to abject failure. Yes. Right. You can't just throw money at an issue and expect, oh, the administrators are going to do a good job of it. The politicians are going to know where the money ought to be spent, because all this has really shown is that the contractors are most likely misappropriating funds that they're being sent towards pet projects that don't actually help the homeless crisis at all. Oh, yeah. I'm, there is almost zero oversight mm. over the distribution of these funds and where they're going. So it's... it begs the question, Grant, huh. you are emperor for a day. Ooh. What do you do about the homelessness crisis? Where would you put money to address the issue? Frankly, I would start by 3D printing houses. Okay. That can be automated relatively easily, and you can make shelter with, w without having to dip into you – can, you can make shelter and livable places with these uh, large industrial size additive manufacturing machines. We've seen them at play out in Palm Desert. We've mm. seen a couple examples at play through third world countries yeah. where they are trying to build affordable housing that works. It's a concrete house. You just throw in a couple windows, door, and some toiletries, some plumbing in there. This is a viable option, folks. And I think that we need to give a bit more credit to those who are exploring using this automated method of building shelter because it can be cheapened to the point where we can make more or less temporary housing. I, I, if nothing else. To be if fair, it turns into permanent. permanent housing, then yeah. someone's willing to live there, cool. But at the very least, let's get you inside a box and off the street. Absolutely. And then enable the bureaucracy to stop spending money where it's completely ineffectual. And that's this might be an ineffectual yeah. plan, but you know, you ask, and that's one of the places I would start, is there needs to be a bit more housing. Well, it's fair because it's an it's an, it's an actual plan rather than just meaningless. Let's put them in hotels. Right. Because apparently that hasn't been very successful, so why do we keep doing something that doesn't work? Yeah. We keep uh, doing something that doesn't work. And, that, and, that, and that's the nature of this. It is a modern Vietnam War. We got involved, or the state government got involved with the wrong strategy, dealing with a problem which, sure, maybe they should have. They, it is good that they're tackling it. Yeah. Th they're throwing, just as the U.S. government threw its young men across the ocean and into the artillery of an enemy which we didn't need, so too have the state legislators of California thrown their taxpayers' money at a problem which it cannot solve with that. And what's the statistics? Something like every $2 million represents a life that could be saved through spending in other sources? Something like that. So cost of $18 billion. That's a Billion lot. with a B. That's a lot of money that could have been spent on other services if it just hadn't been wasted so ineffectually. Yeah. And sorry to have such a depressing couple of topics <laughs> thus far, but uh, th th those are the things that we need to share on the show today. Absolutely. Well, and I got one more. Oh, go for it. No, no. I got one more topic. Unless you have another. No, no, no. no. I, I wanna, I wanna figure out what you got next. All right. This is a, a bit of a regurgitation of an article <laughs> I read in the journal the other day, which surprised me. So, you know, I've always had a bit of a, an opinion on the remote work or working from home scenario. And mm -hmm. here's the gist of it is that me personally, my productive, my environment is kind of a factor of my productivity. If I'm in my office, I work better than if I'm at home. Mm. I don't know about you. Yeah. If I'm with my, my team, if I'm with people who are thought leaders with me, 
I am more qualitatively better than if I'm sitting at home on my couch with, you know, just my dog right there. Um, so the whole remote work thing, I think, has seen a degradation of the quality of American work and around the world, too. What I saw in the journal the other day was an interesting article talking about how people are using what's called a uh, remote work pod. And the, the essence of it is, is you join like a Facebook group or something, you connected with other remote workers, work from home people that you don't even know. It's just strangers. And for six or eight hours for your work day, you guys all just hop on a Zoom call together, don't talk to each other, but are present with one another. Mm -hmm. And this has, I guess, somewhat fulfilled the social aspect. Yeah. And reports that I've read in the journal are saying that, oh, yeah, I feel more productive when I'm being watched. We knew this. That was tested in 1932. What was the name of that experiment? The Hawthorne experiments, where they put a camera in a warehouse to see if people worked better in light or dark. It turns out that people just work better when they're in front of a camera. Yeah. If you think you're being watched, you're going to work harder. And so that is a mentality which is coming around into this working double or uh, remote work pod. I don't, uh, I'm not like giving opinion on it. I just found it such an interesting article that this is how people's mentality is. They're not tough enough to work on their own. I, or they're I, recognizing that there is power in the group. I, I think it's so, – so you're mentioning, yes, there is power in the group or that they're not tough enough to work on their own. I think the other way of looking at it is simply just accountability because when we look at people who work remote, work on site, I think the driving force in both of those situations is they don't really care about the company. And let's just, let's just have a, a moment of, of peace and truth and tranquility and just drop our barriers for a second. If you're a business leader, there is something you have to recognize about your company for a second. Your employees don't give a shit. Like I, I'm, I'm sorry to say this. Don't be and, sorry. And and I get Spit that. truth. I get that this is going to upset a lot of people. Your employees do not care whether you make money at the end of the day. You are paying them for a salary, and that salary is the only reason they go to work because they're just terrified of poverty and homelessness. Right, that's that's the main reason that they show up. It's not because they like you. It's not because they like your company. It's because they're worried about the consequences and the alternative. The reason I say this is remote work enables somebody to prioritize their quality of life over their productiveness. Their productivity directly is impacted because they don't have somebody watching them. They don't have to be good for the boss anymore. They don't have to listen to what the boss says because the boss isn't there. And if you're not going to fire them for only getting eight reports done a day instead of 10 or 12 reports done a day, they will continue to do exactly that because you're not motivating them. You're not giving them equity in the company. You're not giving them a reason to, to care more. You're not giving them any reward to care more because you're not compensating them respective to their labor input. You are just expecting a certain output regardless. And that's ridiculous. You can't expect an output unless you provide a commensurate input. So if you want people to work harder, but you also don't want to pay the resulting expenses for having them on site, hmm. pay them more for remote work with the expectation of the same quality of output. Basically say, hey, look, your office costs us $1,000 a month to keep up. In exchange, we'll pay you an extra $500 a month if you go home 
and produce the same quality and quantity of work from before. Yeah, but here's my point. I don't think that that can be done. I think there's another edge that occurs when you are on site, physically near your team, physically near the workspace. There's a different mentality when you walk in the door of your office than when you're at home. And I, I think that the home should not be adulterated by, by work life. I think that there's a crossover, but when if you want productivity, you can't expect that from a, a person's house. No, I, I, I think you can because I think people, even at the workplace, are only probably putting in about 40% of an effort as it is today. Yeah, but then you add another uh, environmental bonus of 5%. Right, so if you add that environmental bonus in for 5%, or you compensate them more for doing better work, you'll get the same output either way. That's fair. All I'm saying is I think the biggest reason that people work hard at work is because they have somebody sitting on them. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. That's the only reason. It's not It's not because they actually care about their work or even care about the product of their work. It's all out of fear. And fear is a good motivation. Let, let's be honest here. Fear does wonders for the human body. But... It and it's really interesting that that's the direction this goes because this working this these co-working pods, remote yeah. working pods... You're never, your boss isn't on the call. It's no. literally like random strangers. Who yeah. are just You're just all working together. And you're like, hey, guys, got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. Well, you get the environmental aspect without getting the draconian oversight, which I hate to say now that I'm saying this out loud, it kind of makes me despise the system <laughs> of, you know, hey, by the way, you only work because you're terrified of not eating today. Like, that's a pretty awful way that we have to live our quality of life, but it's, this, a, it's, it's the world we live in. This is humanity. Yeah, this is how we have to live, exactly. I guess, and if unfortunately. You, and to be fair, if you don't scare people into working, they just, they're not going to work, right? Yeah. So, I dream of a world where people are motivated by productivity and accomplishment rather than money, but because food costs money, we can't do that. We can't, we can't live in that world yet. Simultaneously, the, oh, I want to go back to this idea of the evolution of co-working. I, I apologize that we, we got a little bit off track for it. I'll send it. Because I think what you're describing is kind of the best of both worlds, mm -hmm. where you're saying you have a co-working space that's online, that's, that's connected over the internet, while simultaneously not having the overhead cost of having somebody in person. It's a bit of a social atmosphere, which right. people need a social atmosphere. Right. You have to have it. We're social creatures. We are definitely that. And so what... Do you, if you're... Emperor of the world, now you're CEO of Goldman Sachs. And you have a bunch of employees who were previously working in person, then were moved digitally during the coronavirus crisis, mostly your IT professionals, HR, people who could work remote. What happens to those people? Do you bring them in the office? Do you give them a co-working space or something in between? Well, let me first say, if I was the CEO of Goldman Sachs, I'd probably throw myself out the window. That's <laughs> <laughs> a, a hard job, yeah. Um, what was the question? What happens to the people that are necessary to run an on-site operation? But who could be, who could run a remote operation? You know, well, your IT and HR professionals. Then they don't need go work remote. Even if the output that they provide is lower than it was before? Yeah, you have to. But, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying is, uh, uh, and I will be hated for this because people don't want to go back into the office, I guess. But I would say, you, like, you got to be on-site a couple days mm. because you need that rejuvenation of the, of... Wow, uh, this is going to sound terrible, and I and I sound like a horrible capitalist saying this, but you you need the rejuvenation of the workspace to get you focused again. And this is where I'm a psychopath because all I do is work. See, see, see. I, I, I enjoy it. 
I, I hear you saying it in a really nice way, the rejuvenation of the workplace, but it, what it really sounds like is you need the fire under your ass again. I'm, that's why I'm evil. <laughs> that's why oh. this is like the hardest thing to do because you don't want me as your boss. No. well, Actually, you don't want me as your boss because I'll do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, though, how do you prioritize output while simultaneously recognizing the input commensurate to that output? You pay them more. Money. That's what you want. You gotta give people money, and you gotta give them more of it now. If you want to motivate your workforce and keep them there, it's cash. You're paying uh, relatively well-trained professional less than sixty-five a year, and you're in a notable city. Mm. You're going to be having poor output, and you have nobody to blame but yourself. If you want better output, don't fire them. Go look for somebody else. Train them. Invest in that person. Make them a part of the culture. Yeah. And now I'm getting into the part of, I, I'm not going to be the guy who says, we are all a family here. I'm not that guy. Because I don't, at the end of the day, there's things that I just don't care about. I care about the productivity. Well, I, th I think those artificial constructs of family are made around healthy workplaces that pay their people well, that provide good benefits, that are environments where people want to work in. Because at the end of the day, if the pay is incredibly good and the hours are reasonable, so you're being paid commensurate to your input, that's where you'll develop your society. That's where you'll develop your community. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the rest of the culture that comes from the company comes from the core basics. And we 100% sound like evil capitalists right now saying, we have to develop the company culture if we well, want to have effective output. And there's some truth to that. But I don't want to be like... You know what I'm saying? Well, I think it's we actually the opposite. We all despise that person. If, if we're, we're, we're saying is that company culture has to be built upon workers' rights, around worker prioritization. Okay. Right? The company comes from the worker. Worker is what enables everything else that happens in the company. And thereby, if you want to keep your workers happy, keep your workers productive, and keep the trained professional individuals that you have inside of your company you need to ensure that they have the benefits that will build the culture you so desire. Yeah. Right? It, it, the, the two things are inextricably linked. I would not be happy as a, as a business leader if, all the, if the people who are working for me were not happy and taken care of. Yeah. The point of it is for the, – what's the base of the word company? It's a company. Where we keep each other's company. We are a company of people working together. And so that becomes – you know, the, the group. And I am, you know how rabidly protective I am of my friends in my friend group and looking out for each other. And that's the way a good company needs to be run. If, if I may then just for one second, build off of what you're talking about because it's a little bit of a tangent, but it's something I want to get your opinion on. I have been incredibly frustrated over the last few months, you know, during Pride Month, during Black History Month, seeing companies that do not respect their black employees or respect their queer employees still pretending hey you know we're all on the same page here and mm. waving that rainbow flag mm. because to me it's an indication of intrinsic failure that we allow companies to wear a dei diversity equity inclusion they let they wear these these pins that say hey i'm a good little boy while simultaneously not doing anything to forward any of the uh, actual social programs they need to do I totally get where you're going, and I, and I will state this. I think the hypocrisy is worse than the crime. Well, I, I, I think the hypocrisy of people trying to stand up and say, look at how much we – look how good this is. 
it, it is worse. Almost worse. Okay, no, maybe not no. worse. Almost worse than if there was like wholehearted discrimination. Well, I think wholehearted discrimination is answerable. That's the problem, is that the hypocrisy hides itself. Yes. It hides the real underlying issues. So when you and have that's a, my point. When you have a company that is like has open problematic behavior, people call them out on that and act accordingly. But when you have an, a company that's acting with hidden motivations and does things in the background that are absolutely atrocious, uh, <coughs> Blizzard, um, when you have a company like that that truly runs an, an evil operation that harms people, people based on their intrinsic factors that company hides itself by saying but you know what we really support homosexuals and we really support people of color and we really support people of native american descent aren't we so wonderful and the issue is that i feel like there needs to be standards based on a government perspective that says you do not you cannot claim certain you know Ooh. privileges Unless you fulfill certain benchmarks. That's a lot of regulation right there. I know, but how else do you stop a company that like abuses its gay employees from saying, but we support our gay customers? How? That, that's a really good question. I don't know how. I mean, I do know how it's the answer you just suggested. <laughs> it's, it's bureaucracy that has to come into play, but again, with bureaucracy, you have inefficiency. Always. So, sorry, to, sorry, I just wanted to... No, uh, <laughs> as always, Matt, these conversations are eye-opening, oh. perspective-gaining, and I, I hope as interesting to you as they are to us. Absolutely. And with that, closing remarks, sir. Uh, I think we've talked about a lot today, but I think what we've discussed is a balance of perspectives is necessary. Whether we're talking about U.S.-China warfare operations, whether we're talking about evolution of co-working, whether we're talking about the homelessness epidemic, whatever we're talking about, I think what we've shown is that the importance of a diversity of opinions that really tries to play devil's advocate while simultaneously understanding the intrinsic failure that's gotten us to the point where we are today. Yeah. And there's a lot of com contributing factors on that front. In that, in that, folks, is why we do this show. I think that the two of my favorite words were in that phrase that Matt let off with balance and perspective. Those are the things that we want to bring to you, that we want to provide a little bit, bit of perspective while giving balance of the opinions being shared. I hope that that's what we've been able to bring you. I'm Grante and my co-host Matt. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next time on The Griffin Review.